Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. I'd like to note a warning for listeners. This episode contains discussion of child sexual abuse, and this content can be emotionally challenging. In this episode, David Ma, author of Secrets and Lies in Conversation. Ma is the editor of the Australian newspaper's monthly luxury lifestyle magazine, Wish. He has been a senior writer for the Australian Financial Review magazine and has written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire and the Sydney Star Observer. His previous books include Fashion Speak, Interviews with the World's Leading Designers and The A to Z of Modern Manners, A Guide to Behaving Well, but this book is quite a departure. Secrets and Lies is a story about child sexual abuse the culture that enabled it, how the perpetrator groomed his victims, how the abuse came to an end, and how, four decades after the crimes were committed, his victims embarked upon a successful two-year journey to bring the offender to justice. To interview Ma about this book and this story, we're joined by Stephen Brooke, Deputy Editor of The Sunday Age. He has been a CBD columnist for The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald, and a former media diarist and features editor of The Australian, and has written for The Guardian over in London, too. Here's Stephen Brooke and David Ma in conversation. So David Ma, it's 2018, and despite sharing your name with another journalistic namesake, you're living your best life. You're editing a globally recognised luxury magazine, Wish. You're travelling the world. You're reviewing five-star hotels. You're meeting and interviewing celebrities. Then one day, you get a text message from an old mate. It's completely innocuous. It's inviting you out to dinner. But immediately you think, aha, something's up. Your instincts prove correct because this, in fact, is a text message that changes your life, causes you to write this memoir, and leads you to this Readings Bookshop podcast today. So what happened? Well, out of the blue, as you said, I got a text message from someone I went to school with asking me to dinner. I was slightly suspicious of it because it just wasn't someone that I would just get a dinner invitation from. And we sat down to dinner. We met, we arranged a time and date and we sat down and he came out with it pretty quickly. He said, you might be wondering why I wanted to have dinner. And I said, I was. (laughs) And he said he'd gone to the cops to report what happened to us both when we were at school. Well, he reported his case. He'd already started his process with the police. He'd started giving a statement and basically wanted to know if I wanted to join him in sending this teacher who abused both of us at school to jail. Your reaction was one of complete astonishment, wasn't it? Yeah, it was because, I mean, you know, obviously there have been times in my life when the memories of that time are front and centre, but this wasn't one. I hadn't thought about you know, what happened 40 years ago for a very long time. And so I was quite surprised, but it it really wasn't what I was expecting him to say. And then I was a bit thrown by it. And I think he probably expected me to just go, yeah, absolutely, sign me up. But I didn't. I spent about six months sort of going backwards and forwards and changing my mind so many times before I actually landed on, yes, I will join you. One of the great things I thought about this book and the many completely true to life aspects of it, I think, was that 
You were also surprised because you couldn't remember your previous conversations with this man who you call Paul in the book about this abuse. No, it kind of came back to me in the over the course of the dinner and the sort of the weeks afterwards. But I mean, he had a very clear memory of when and where I told him, but it was in a gay bar one Saturday night in Oxford Street probably about 20 years ago, which meant that I was probably very drunk or in some other way intoxicated or both. It was like when you have a big night out and you get really, really drunk and someone starts telling you things that you did and sort of flashes of memory come back to you. And obviously I had told him because he had a lot of detail about my story, but I really had actually forgotten that incident which leapt out at me as something completely relatable too, and I'm sure many other people who've read it, because life is like that. What's incredibly significant to some people, the other party forgets about. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously he'd gone over it and over it in his mind and, you know, he told me, you know, what I told him and relayed the conversation as though we had it last week. And that sort of shocked me a little bit as well, as well as the purpose of the dinner. It was just that I kind of, I thought, I can't believe I can't remember this. And I, and not that I can't remember it. There's lots of things I can't remember. But I spoke about something so personal and I had no memory of it. That threw me a little bit as well. But other parts of your book are incredibly detailed and vividly described. You talk about going to some nightclub in Sydney decades ago, and right down to the detail about the bar, where the dance floor was, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so, I've been there quite a few times. Okay. <laughs> but in the process of not just writing the book, but before that, your interaction with the criminal justice system, did you find yourself recalling more and more about your case? I did. I mean, you know, as I said, I spent about six months before I agreed and before I made contact with the detective in our case, Annie Clark. And she set up a time to just come and have a chat. Like I wasn't going to be giving my statement that day. She just kind of wanted to meet me. And in preparation for that chat, I literally got out a pen and paper and just started writing down dates and places. It's not that I repressed these memories or I couldn't remember them. I just needed to kind of get this timeline clear in my head. And, you know, when I started, it was very basic. You know, it was like 1980, year eight. But then I sort of put more and more detail into it. And the more I tried to remember by creating this timeline, the more I did actually remember. Even when I was giving my statement to the police, you know, you're in a police interview room and I thought I knew what I was going to say. And as I was saying it, I kept saying to her, oh, yeah, and then this thing happened, you know, and I kept sort of remembering things. So what happened? You go into great detail in your book about it. You don't need to do that here if you don't want to. But what happened to you at high school? And Paul, what was this case about? Well, it was a teacher, his name is Desmond Thornton, and he was a teacher that started at the school when I was in year eight. He was also the school's careers advisor, which was a bit of a non-job in a way. And I was the kind of kid who was quite bullied at high school. And as a result, I kind of got into, weirdly, kind of got into trouble all the time. I was, you know, a kid would say something to me in the playground and I would say something back but I was always the one that got caught swearing or, you know, in class I was the one that would have my mouth open when the teacher turned his or her back. And then Thornton kind of used that. I was either held back after class, so he had one-on-one time with me then, or he sort of convinced me that because I was on detention all the time and I was misbehaving and my grades were bad that I needed careers advice, otherwise, you know, I was going to be left behind. 
So school and you was a terrible fit. It didn't work. It was no. the wrong school. It was the wrong environment. What sort of school was it? It was a Catholic boys' school in Randwick, which is a eastern suburb in Sydney, not far from Coogee Beach. And if it's Randwick, it must be obsessed with rugby. Well, yes. The school was obsessed with football in general. I mean, it was one of those schools where you had to play football. And my father decided he didn't like rugby league, so we played rugby union. And we had a pretty multicultural school, so we also had soccer as well, which this is in the 1980s. Kids like me didn't really know what soccer was. And you had to play sport. It was a sport-focused school. I think the two things that put above academic performance was sport and religion. It was also what I would call a very Catholic school. So sport, religion, none of those seem a good fit for David Marr. Not at all. I mean, I came from a big family and we were a pretty Catholic family. We went to Mass every Sunday. You know, that was your only life. That was all you knew on Sunday mornings was going to church. So I didn't really think much of that in a way. I wasn't too critical of it, but... I just wasn't into sport in the way that everybody else was. And the more that you weren't into it at that school, the more you kind of became an outsider. You couldn't hold conversations with kids at school. You didn't know the names of football players or cricket players. The other problem was I wasn't very good. And they're team sports. And when you're not very good, you let everybody down. So it just kind of snowballs into this big thing. And do you think your outsider status was noticed? Absolutely. I wasn't the only one who wasn't good at sport and stuff, but kids at that school made the connection between not being good at sport and therefore you must be gay. And, you know, as I said, this was a very strict Catholic school. I didn't really know what gay meant. You know, they didn't teach you that homosexuality was bad. That's not what happened in a Catholic school. They just don't talk about it at all. So it's just not something that you're really in touch with. I do write in the book, in quite a bit of detail, I suppose, about the level of bullying that went on at that school. And it wasn't just the kids that other kids thought might be gay. It was the ethnic kids as well. And do you think, well, it's clear your perpetrator noticed this and took advantage? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I know now in hindsight from doing research for the book that it's a pretty common tactic. You know, you pick on the kids who are isolated. You don't pick on the popular kids. <laughs> and he used that to his advantage. There was Being bullied was one of the reasons why, as I said, you know, I got in trouble at school all the time. So I was an outsider. I didn't have a lot of friends at lunchtime. You know, I obviously stood out as someone who was vulnerable and would be easy to get one-on-one time with. Well, he found a way to isolate you. He did, yes. I mean, you know, and I, I was also, I was getting in detention and, you know, we had to take a form home to our parents to get our parents to sign and I just didn't want to get in trouble at home. So he was always saying things like, well, you know, you can go to detention after school or you can come to the careers room if you want at lunchtime. And I thought, well, that's an easier trade-off and I didn't really have anything to do at lunchtime. So I, I went. And that's where the abuse occurred? That's where it started. And, I mean, even from the get-go, you know, being in that room with him, there was something quite odd about it. It was a a room that was sort of at the fringe of the school grounds. It wasn't a regular classroom. It had chairs and scattered around it, but it didn't have desks. And the very first time I went into that room, he had two chairs sort of very close together opposite one another, which even then, you know, at that age, I thought were uncomfortably close. And I didn't think at that age I needed careers advice. I really did think it was a bit young to be having to think about what I wanted to be when I grew up. But, you know, I kept getting on detention. I kept getting in trouble. It was an easy thing to do to keep going there. 
And then there were times when I thought, look, I don't want to do that again. You know, I didn't like what was happening in that room, so I just wouldn't go. And then I would get into bigger trouble. So, you know, it sounds silly to say I didn't have a choice because obviously I did, but I was 14 years old in this kind of pretty strict Catholic environment and had a fairly kind of strict upbringing. And when I say strict upbringing is, you know, my parents didn't like us getting in trouble at school, so it was better to not get in trouble at school. Though that from this perspective, as a 14-year-old, your choices in life are limited. Absolutely. You, and, and, you know, you're in a school environment that was a very strict school. I mean, you know, we got in trouble if our ties weren't done up or our socks weren't pulled up. You know, it was, you know, and all of that kind of sort of really minor stuff, I think, is really just about making kids aware that there's a power structure there and you have no power. And discipline was just a, a way of life. Despite your limited power, though, you did manage to stop I did. I mean, you know, the funny thing was, I th he had said to me, next year, you're going to have to be very careful about what subjects you choose, because the subjects you choose going into year nine will determine what you can do at university. And I was careful about the subjects I chose. I made sure I chose subjects that he didn't teach. That was my only requirement. And so I went into year nine. He wasn't a teacher of mine anymore. I couldn't get in trouble in his classes. I couldn't be told to go to the careers room. And that worked for a while. And then one day he turned up at my house in the morning. Weird. Weird, but I mean, yes, it was weird, but teachers did sort of ingratiate themselves with parents. It wasn't the most unusual thing. I mean, it, yes, it was weird, but it wasn't completely strange. And he had this story about being locked out of an apartment that he was looking after and he needed someone small to climb in a window and open the door. Guess which Ma brother he wanted to uh, do Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I had to get dressed and go and help Mr Thornton and climb in a window. You know, the things that you remember, I remember that day very, very well. And I do remember sitting there in our kitchen with him retelling the story, thinking, this is just nonsense. But I did, and I went in, and I climbed in the window, and I knew, you know, pretty much up until that point, all the abuse had happened on school grounds. Here I was in a sort of no-man's land, you know. It wasn't my home, I didn't know this apartment, and it wasn't school grounds either. And I sort of had a feeling that, things were escalating and getting to going to get to a level that they hadn't been at before and I was right and they did and I was a bit shocked and horrified in a way about what happened and I don't know why and I don't know what possessed me but I jumped off the sofa and said you know stood over in the other corner of the room and said I don't want to do this anymore and it just stopped literally there and then he told me to put my clothes on and he'd take me to school. And he never spoke to me again. And that was that. That was the end of it. I mean, I didn't know at the time, you know, I kind of thought, you know, you don't talk back to teachers, I'll get in trouble for, for doing this. I mean, it makes sense, you know, if you think about it, if someone, the last thing somebody doing what he was doing would want is somebody who's making a noise. And he never spoke to me again, never acknowledged me in the playground or anything. So it was over. It was over for you. Yes. When Paul and I met for dinner in 2018, I didn't really know much about his personal story, partially because I couldn't remember the night that we spoke about it. 
But it became kind of clear when he was sort of telling me when things started and where they started and how they started. There was a lot of similarity. The careers room was a a big part of it. But it would seem that he started with Paul when he stopped with me. He wasn't a multitasker when it came to abusing children. He was more of a one at a time kind of guy. And that revelation or that realisation, did that have an impact on you? I mean, look, you know, I felt, you know, I felt somewhat guilty about it or, you know, upset that that's what happened. I'm not to blame for any of it. I understand that. But, you know, at the time, all I really cared about was that it wasn't happening to me. I didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me and I didn't think that if it stopped with me, it would start with somebody else. Well, no, because A, as a 14-year-old, and B, back in the early 80s, it's not as if you were expected to know about the habits of serial predators. No, not at all, no. But, yeah, no, I did have moments, you know, when and when it became clearer, you know, when my police statement was done, and so there was a lot of more specifics on dates and so on. I didn't have access to Paul's police statement, but, you know, we did speak about it a little bit, and it was pretty clear that that's what had happened. Another really striking aspect of the book is that you tracked this guy down. Yeah, I did. In 2013, I just, you know, I think that was a a time when, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, you know, there were huge chunks of times when I didn't think about this at all, but then there were times when I ruminated on it a lot. And in 2013, you know, Google search and stuff was still, had sort of got a little bit more sophisticated, so it was easy to track people down. And I found him, you know, I couldn't find him on social media anywhere, on Facebook or anything like that. But also you were a journalist and... Uh, That's journalist. our job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the funniest thing was I was about to give up and I clicked onto another search page and a blog post came up, which was actually a blog post that was about his wife. And the caption for it said, you know, so lovely to meet you and your lovely husband, Des. And it was the name Des that stood out. So I clicked on it and I thought, oh, that kind of looks like him. So I, you know, downloaded the photo and as luck would have it, they were all wearing name tags. No. (laughs) Yes. Right. So I didn't have him, but I had his wife. And so... What did you do? Well, I found her email pretty easy. I emailed her saying, with some crazy story about organising a school reunion. And as I've just indicated, I would be the least likely person to want to organise a school reunion. And he emailed me back about 24 hours later saying, yes, he was that Des Thornton and how lovely you're organising a school reunion and where is it going to be and when is it and all this kind of stuff. I had worked out before I emailed him that he was living in Alice Springs. And then I thought, oh God, you know, I can't believe how easy that was. (laughs) And sometime later, maybe a few days later, I emailed him a well sort of thought out email confronting him about what he did to me when I was a kid. And I wrote it in a way that I didn't ask questions in it. I wasn't expecting a response. I just really kind of wanted to get something off my chest. And in the book, I have published these emails, by the way. And to my astonishment, he replied. And it's really hard to read that email because it's an apology, but he's not clear what he's apologising for. But it is an apology, which is a form of admission of guilt. And I was so shocked by it. Honestly, I thought if he responded at all, it would be to tell me, you know, I don't know what you're talking about or, you know, never contact me again or whatever. 
And I was genuinely shocked by the content of his email. And I shut my laptop and never looked at that email again until 2019 when I made contact with the police. As a reader, I found that entire sequence incredible. You tracked him down, you found the wife, you saw the photo, it had name tags on, you wrote to her and him, he responded, you confronted him, he apologised. And then, as you say, you shut your laptop up and did nothing. Incredibly true to life because... What do you do with that? Exactly. (laughs) Do you go running to the cops? And I also thought, you know, this is pre-Royal Commission, don't forget. Right. Certainly, the Royal Commission hadn't finished and, you know, that did change the attitudes towards uh, of the police towards crimes like this. But also, I imagine, do I have the time, energy, emotional reserves to go through this process, which are questions that you asked yourself years later yeah. when you had that dinner with Paul? And, and it was just also, you know, part of me, I mean, maybe it's my Catholic upbringing, but a part of me thought... I had lied to get this email. I had lied to get this confession, you know, with this crazy story about a school reunion. I mean, in the scheme of lies, it's not such a big deal. But that was one of the things that was going through my head that was like, oh, maybe I've stuffed this up. Maybe from a legal point of view, I shouldn't have contacted him. I shouldn't have confronted him. Maybe I had watched a little bit too much Law and Order. But I just thought, I think I might have stuffed this up. And so that was also going through my mind as well. You were on that point 100% wrong. Yeah, I was. The women in this book, the law and order, both sides, if you like, the police and the DPP, the Department of Public Prosecutions, are incredible. Yeah, Annie Clark, detective, senior constable Annie Clark, she was quite young. I mean, she'd only been a detective for about a year when she met us. But she was just incredibly meticulous with her research. And, you know, in cases like this, there's no evidence, really. I mean, it's my word against his word. There's no forensic evidence. There's no CCTV footage or digital evidence or anything like that. There's no diary entries. There's There's nothing. emails. There is an email. One email. Yeah. (laughs) But not from the time. No. And so detective work for cases like this is like old school Hollywood movie detective work. It's taking tiny little bits of information and trying to put threads together and corroborating dates and so on. I mean, I had to, at one point, draw a floor plan of the apartment that I was in 40 years ago. And to my surprise, I got it pretty well. (laughs) So Annie spent about a year gathering all that kind of evidence for my statement and for Paul's as well. And then at a certain point, you know, was ready to make an arrest in the Northern Territory. You know, it's a slow process. And the funny thing about it is it's like a lot of activity happens and then nothing for months. And Annie did say to us, look, if you don't hear from me, it doesn't mean I'm not working on your case. It's just, you know, basically no news is no news. But there'd be all these kind of bursts of activity and things. But yeah, it was a very slow moving kind of process. But I think really that's just about making sure they have literally all their ducks in a row before they make an arrest. Well, look, I have known you for a very long time and I don't think of you as someone who has led a double life. Nevertheless, for the period of this court case, you were, to some extent, leading a double life in that very few people knew about it. Mm. It was almost a case of you were in court in the morning and you, you were back doing your day job 
in the afternoon editing a luxury magazine. And, you know, COVID was a very good thing for me because the court case ran over the two lockdowns in Sydney. So no one really needed to know where I was, you know, as long as I was doing my work. And and court is sometimes just an hour, you know. So it's not like you're sitting there all day. So I would just go to court in the morning, then go back to my desk and do my work. Or I'd go into the office if we were working from the office. But there's a vivid passage in the book where something very important is happening at court, but you must attend a meeting that very day with the editor-in-chief. One of my jobs on The Australian was to edit our annual Rich List magazine. And it was about the only thing that I ever really had to sort of show to the editor-in-chief to get approved. And he just wouldn't budge on the date. He had to have it done at four o'clock that afternoon. And that was the first sentencing hearing. And I had cleared the date in my diary. I knew the date for weeks in advance. I was going to take an annual leave day. And I had to go in and get this cover approved. And, you know, normally it's a bit of a battle and you have to argue your case and and so on. But I literally just, you know, I think Chris, the editor-in-chief, just said, oh, what about this one? And I went, fine. I just, it's not that I didn't care. I just felt like I had more important things to worry about. Which, as it turned out, you did. I did. I mean, it was a very weird day. I mean, the sentencing hearing, in our case, Thornton pled, eventually pled guilty. So we didn't have a trial. But we did have a sentencing hearing where we had to deliver, both of us had to deliver victim impact statements. So explain a bit about that process because people won't be familiar with that. Well, it's in a courtroom, just like a normal trial, and there's a judge, obviously. And you get to write, if you like, your message to the judge and to the courtroom. Yes. And you're not given much advice on how to do it. You're really only told what not to do. You can't recommend a sentence. You can't bring up crimes that are not relevant to this case and so on. Okay, well, you're a journalist and an editor. Yes. How do you go with it? Well, I just look, I, I spent months working on it. I didn't really know what to do. You don't have to do it. And there were times when I thought, oh, forget it. I won't do it. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, you do get to that point where you think we've come this far, like it would be silly not to. It is something that a judge takes into consideration when deciding on a sentence. And I searched online. Strangely enough, you can't find very many victim impact statements for crimes like this online. But I found this Netflix documentary called Athlete A, which is about the sexual abuse scandal in women's gymnastics in the US. So this was the case of basically the team doctor yes who turned out to be a notorious abuser of all these girls on the pretext of you know medically examining them or, or yeah. checking to see whether they needed physio or or something and there was a trial he was sentenced and many of the victims delivered victim impact statements which were i think public some of them are public. There's one by one of the main complainants in the case called Rachel Den Hollander, who's actually a lawyer now. You know, her entire victim impact statement was available online, but there's bits of it in the documentary. And she just had a way of being very kind of calm and methodical and really explaining, you know, at that point in time, the, the facts in the case are not in dispute. So you don't need to bring up the facts of the case. You need to explain to the judge what those facts did to you. And she did that really well and really clearly. And I thought, oh, okay, that's how you do it. So how long was your victim impact statement? It was about 4,000 words. Brevity's never really been your strong suit, has well, it? Well, you can do... You, you can you, have, never publish a 4,000 4, word piece in your magazine, David. No. Um, but it you can had be, things to say. 
Yeah, and it can be up to 20 A4 pages. So it, it was on the shorter side if you compare it to that. I mean, in a way, it's a 4,000-word summary of the book, so to speak. And was it easy to write and was it easy to deliver? No, neither of them were particularly easy. I sort of foolishly convinced myself after having written it, because, you know, it does also get submitted as a written document. After having written it, it would be really easy to deliver it. I didn't have to. I was given the option of having a court volunteer read it, but I thought, oh, well, you know, it's my story. I'll, I'll do it. But, you know, there were things in that statement that I hadn't really said out loud before. So it was it was more challenging than I thought, even though it's a closed court and really the only people in the room that day were people who had, you know, business there. And the judge told me I could take as long as I needed and I could stop if I wanted to. And Did so you on. stop? No, but I took a while to get going. <laughs> um, once I got going, it was it was kind of okay. But, I mean, it was sort of, you know, it's a weird thing because, you know, everyone's looking at you. Uh, you know, courtrooms are soundproofed from the outside, so it's incredibly silent in there. And I got to the end of it and I, you know, you get to the end of this thing and I felt that I deserved a round of applause for getting to the end of it. And there's just silence. It's just the end of it. And then you go back to your seat. It was a bit strange. I thought, oh, like, did I bomb or something? I don't, I don't know. Paul didn't deliver his in person. He did have a volunteer read his. He was in court, but he didn't. He chose not to read it out himself. The judge did later refer to them in his final judgment. And he, he called them, I can't remember the exact words, but disturbing and a sad kind of acknowledgement of the impact of these crimes have on their victims. You know, he, he did make reference to the victim impact statement. So it is something that the judge took into consideration when deciding a sentence. I just find it incredible that we're both here talking about this because my view of you has always been that you've been a private person. So to me, I just wonder how you went from that to decide that, A, you were going to pursue this through the law and order system and then, B, decide that you're going to get a book out of this. At what time did David Marr, the journalist, turn to David Marr, the victim survivor, and say, I think you could get a book out of this one? When I finally had said to Paul that, you know, I, I was ready to talk to the police and, you know, yes, I would be a part of this, he didn't pressure me at all, but we had many conversations over the months. He said to me, oh, do you mind if I asked, you know, what made you change your mind? And I said, well, I thought I might get a book out of it. And I wasn't being funny because I did kind of think maybe I will and maybe I won't. Like maybe the whole thing will fizz and burn and we won't get anywhere and that's not particularly interesting for a book. But I did think, well, you know, I'm a journalist. Maybe if I treat this as a, a research project, I can get through it all and not really have to be too involved in it or take it too personally. I can sort of attend court like a journalist, which is what I did. I went and I had said to our lawyer that I intended to come to every court session and sit there and take notes. And she was, I think, quite happy to have somebody doing that. But it was a way for me to sort of disconnect from it a little bit. But at the same time, I thought, like I think a lot of journalists do, when something happens to you or when you experience something, I think there are times when people think, well, maybe there's a story in this. I mean, we both know people who's, as journalists whose houses have burnt down in bushfires and have, you're a journalist, your, your journalistic instincts kick in and think, this is a good story. 
well, clearly, and you've demonstrated that by the book, I just wonder how exposing it was going through what all authors have to go through, which is the pitching process. One thing to write a book on etiquette, which you've done, <laughs> and for that to either, it was published, but you could face that kind of rejection. How do you think you would have coped if your agent or your publisher had said, I think we're passing on this one, David, given it was so personal? I think so. I mean, there was a part of me, you know, I had this weird kind of feeling at one point where I thought maybe they're too upset. Maybe they they think that I will be too upset if they reject me. So maybe they're, you know, I thought, oh God, maybe they're just publishing this as like a charity exercise or something. Book publishers don't do that. But I had spoken to my agent about it. I had given her an outline. Was she expecting a book on luxury handbags or five-star no, hotels she, she'd or been given a heads up about what it was right. um, from another one of her clients. And I had worked with Penguin Random House before and I've had the same publisher, Meredith Kerno. And I had said, look, I'd really like to work with them on this. So she pitched it to Meredith as a first port of call. And I think Meredith was a bit surprised as to what the book was. But I, I think... Again, you know, Tara, when my agent had said, you know, I'm sending you a proposal from David, it's perhaps not what you're expecting or something. So she'd given her a little bit of a heads up. And then I, you know, I asked for a year to write it. And then I set about filling out all the blanks in that proposal. And at that stage, I had the justice yes. sequence completed itself. I waited until it had, because I felt that that was an important part of the story. So we had final sentencing in February, I think it was, and I sort of pitched the book not long after that. Oh, now my mum says hi after <laughs> your book launch. I gave her a copy of the book and she read it. She Well, she read the Good Weekend okay. cover story and she read the book very quickly, I might add. She's 83 years old. Did you expect your book, your memoir, Secrets and Lies, to have such a wide appeal? Um, it's been interesting since I've, this book and my other book was about more than five years and really social media has become a much more important thing for the promotion of books than it was in 2015, more than five years ago when I published the last one. But it's just interesting. People take photos of them reading the book and send them to me. I mean, some of them are people I know, but a lot of them are people I don't know. And so, you know, I go through their social media profiles to see who they are, and they are a mixture of ages. You know, when you work on a book, it's a very solitary thing. It's literally just you in a room at home working on it. You don't even show anything to the publisher until it's kind of all done. And then there's a long kind of process of editing, and it's like working in a bubble, and you kind of forget that actually at a certain point it gets sent out into the world and people read it. Real people read real it people. and have real reactions to it. Yeah, and people you don't know as well. Which, so, is... which I specifically wanted to ask you about because my mother brought up none of the things that I might expect her to bring up, which is, and the book is very graphic, you call a cock a cock. But you know, at one point in the book, I had used the word penis. Right. And when I read it, I thought it sounds too much like a police report. It just okay. didn't seem natural. So I deliberately changed those words. Not a word a teenage boy would use, maybe. No, exactly. Okay. So you've described uh, what happened to you, and the book is much more graphic. And then what I guess you would call the presumed impact of this abuse, which follows you through your adult life, which involves casual sex and drug taking, et cetera, et cetera. She didn't comment on any of those things. And the, indeed, there's something about the technique that you have used to write this book where you give people permission 
and I don't even know how you've done this, but you give permission for people to read all of that and not turn away. And I've read other books, A Little Life maybe, which comes to mind, which is famous for the length and breadth of its graphic writing. Well, and at one point I did have to turn a couple of pages through but uh, not with your book, David, and I'm wondering why, what you think there's something about the tone of which you adopted or the way you put it together. I tried to, I mean, I signposted some of those heavier chapters as a warning, you know. I mean, I didn't write it as a warning, but I indicated in the introduction that there was going to be some, you know, sex, drugs and whatever. I think you even named the chapter, oh, yeah. don't you? You say chapter five or but something. But don't, yeah, but don't skip ahead. Yeah. Um, I'd given that kind of warning, I suppose. You know, they were hard chapters to write because you don't want it to be, you wanted it to be relevant to the story or to relevant to my story, but I didn't want it to seem like a detour. So, you know, when I would write it, I would think, oh, am I going on for too long about this here? You know, like I had to constantly come back to what the point was. And I had a friend who really helped me when I was writing it. He read chapters as a work in progress. And would occasionally send things back to me and he, he, you know, he knows me well and he would say, I don't understand why you're writing all about this here. And he kind of forced me to explain why I had included uh, lots of information about effects of the abuse I had, drug taking and casual sex and so on. Well, you had a very active social life, shall we say, in Sydney for certain years, which also surprised me because I thought, well, I thought you were a bit of a square. Yeah, well... Um, I'm an actor. No, no, no. I mean, look, I mean, you, you, you are, and you aren't. You call the book "Secrets and Lies." I was going to say, at, there's a reason for the title. At some point, do you feel that you made a conscious decision to leave that lifestyle behind and remake yourself? I mean, yeah. Look, you know, at a certain point, my job got to the point where it became more demanding, and I got a lot out of that job. I really enjoyed it. I also didn't want to lose it. And, I, you know, I was the kind of person who sort of, you know, work was a very important defining part of my life. It is. And the more I was successful, the more I wanted to be more successful. And I didn't want to jeopardise that by, you know, and I, and I saw people all around me, you know, Gay Sydney is a fairly small community in a sense. And, you know, I saw people um, develop, you know, really bad addictions and lose their jobs and lose their partners and their houses and all that kind of thing. And I didn't want that to happen to me. Is it fair to look upon your party lifestyle and drug use slash abuse as a continuum or a reaction to what had happened to you at school? Yeah. And look, you know, I think they all kind of play a, a part together. I mean, you know, if you looked too deeply into it, you might say that, uh, you know, I was medicating sometimes with prescription drugs and sometimes with non-prescription drugs. And it's kind of true. You know, look, the thing about, as I sort of wrote in the book, the thing about recreational drug taking is, well, first of all, you know, they're called party drugs for a reason, right? They're fun. You know, when they're fun, they're fun. And when they're fun, they take you away from your world for a while. They stop you thinking things that you don't want to think about. And, you know, that's great. Unfortunately, they have side effects and they, you know, it, it, they sort of snowball into addiction sometimes. But there's a reason for, you know, there's a reason why people want to get drunk or, or get high or whatever. It's so that they don't have to think about um, some things that they don't really like thinking about. Rather than dealing with those things, it's easier to sort of alter your mind in a way. 
I'm not advocating, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not advocating drug use. I'm also, you know, people can do whatever they want to do. But I felt for me that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed doing it. But only up until a certain time period. Then you stopped. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there were a couple of reasons why I stopped. One was a very practical one where I started taking antidepressant medication and amphetamines just don't work anymore. The two sort of cancel one another out, so there's no real point. And I was in a happier frame of mind thanks to antidepressants. But also, you know, sometimes sort of the recovery from a big weekend was far longer than the actual big weekend. The joy is outweighed by the negative aspects. And so it just becomes something that's less and less fun to do. And, you know, if you have a busy life, it's like, well, I can't do it this weekend and I can't do it next weekend. And suddenly, you know, your your weekend's down the, the road. So it's just kind of in a way something that I did less and less because it didn't have the effect that I wanted when I started doing it. And finally, has the reaction to your book, and you talk a bit about the Royal Commission, which is happening in a parallel sense whilst you're going through your own criminal justice process, but if we fast forward from the early 80s when you were at school to the reaction that has happened since your book has been released and you've been doing a lot of Q&As and launches and media, what do you think that has taught you, if anything, about how Australia has changed as a country in dealing with these issues? Well, I mean, I haven't had a single negative comment and I haven't seen any on social media either. In a funny kind of way, I was sort of bracing myself for and what I've received from people who don't know me is nothing but support and positivity. After the story in The Good Weekend came out, I was contacted by a handful of people I went to school with. I won't mention any names, but if he's listening to this, he might know who it is, but he, he would understand what I'm about to say. But he was probably the worst of the bullies at school. He was somebody who I was quite fearful of, you know, physically as well as emotionally, and he contacted me. And he apologised for being part of that culture at school. And these are guys who are, you know, this was a long time ago. These are guys who've probably got their own kids, probably seen their own kids have a difficult time at school, perhaps. You know, they've become more rounded human beings than they were 40 years ago. And I think it takes quite a lot for somebody like that to reach out and apologise to somebody. And your reaction when you got that email? My reaction was I responded and basically said, yeah, thank you very much. That was, you know, it was very nice of you to send me that email or that kind of, I, you know, I just I feel like... I can't believe you're making me be so tabloid, but how did you feel, David? <laughs> I mean, his, his name was a name that I never forgot, obviously, popped up in my inbox and I was like, what on earth is this? And yeah. that was on the day that story came out, it was on the Saturday. You know, in a way, I got to the people that I wanted to get to. If you think of it that way, you know, you think, oh, I wonder if anyone that I went to school with is going to read this and I wonder if they're going to be really kind of upset. Uh, well, the answer to both of those is yes. So it wasn't my intention to upset them, but it was my intention to make them aware of the environment that they created at school and what that did. So in some ways, uh, mission accomplished for you for one of the reasons for you writing this memoir. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've also been contacted by two teachers that I went to school with. And, you know, I can't really say too much, but they have stories basically about what went on at that school at that time. And, you know, I don't know if there's any truth to what they've told me, but Paul and I always thought we weren't the only two victims. Because what happened to Thornton was one day in 1982, he just wasn't at school anymore. And we had a hunch that perhaps another kid made a complaint and the kid's parents marched up to the school and then he was dismissed and it would seem that that's what happened. You know, I kept this a secret for so long, as did Paul. I kind of thought it was important that the school knew what happened there. The bullying they knew about because they did it, but this other thing that happened they probably weren't aware of. So that was something that I felt really good about when the Good Weekend story came out. I think that is a nice note on which to end things. David, thank you for your time today, but also for writing Secrets and Lies. Thank you. And I would like to know what parts of the book your mother did like, but maybe she can tell me privately. We'll we'll take this offline. (laughs) Thanks. Secrets and Lies is available via all reading stores and from our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins and myself. Thank you for listening.